Jim Tolpin is a renowned woodworker and author. He grew up in western Massachusetts and, after getting a degree in geology, found that he preferred working with wood rather than rocks. Early on, he got to know the famous boat builder and designer Bud McIntosh, who became a mentor for both woodworking and writing. Later, he worked at the Penobscot Boat Company in Rockport, Maine. He also got to know the founder of Wooden Boat magazine and wrote a column for them in the early years. After moving to Port Townsend in the late 1970s, Jim specialized in building custom cabinets and furniture while also working and living on boats from time to time. After 10 years in Port Townsend, he thought he'd try his hand at writing and now has written 18 books which have sold close to a million copies. He also writes articles for a number of magazines. Late in his career, he has focused on using hand tools. Most recently, he has been rediscovering pre-industrial woodworking and design techniques. In addition to these topics, in this interview, he discusses what Port Townsend was like in the 70s and 80s, his experience camp cruising in a 14-foot open boat with his wife, Kathy. He gives advice for people entering the trades, talks about the importance of efficiency in making a living in woodworking, and tells us about a hitchhiking dog and much more. My name is Jim Human. If you want to learn more about Jim Tolpin, he often posts on Instagram. That's at Jim Tolpin. And he has a website, byhandandbyeye.com, and a YouTube channel, at Jim Tolpin One. Here's the interview. Where'd you grow up, and what was your young life like? And then we'll get to how you, you got to Port Townsend, how you started working with wood. And so, yeah, where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, western Massachusetts, Springfield, and then Hoyoke, and then Amherst. So I spent all the first probably 25 years of my life was in that area. You know, just the whole public school thing and just the uh, life in the 50s and 60s in a small town, very Port Townsend-like town. Was it? How big? Almost the same as Port Townsend, really. So, you know, maybe 10, 15,000 people, something like that. And we had a paper mill, was a number of paper mills down by the Connecticut River, was the main employers, along with Westover Air Force Base. And we had an uptown and a downtown, just like Port Townsend. And my dad worked at the uh, military base. He was uh, uh, executive secretary to the commander. And um, fun part for me was I could go in the base whenever I wanted on my bicycle, and which I did pretty often, and just hung around the flight line and, watched all the jets take off and all that kind of stuff. Really? They would let you? Yeah, well, I, you know, I had a pass because I would go see my dad and then, then I would just wander. I, I couldn't get on the flight line because that was all fenced off. But, but yeah, back then I just, you know, trundled around on the base and waved at the pilots. I mean, I really kind of fond memories of that time. Did it make you want to uh, fly? Well, yeah, it, was, it became very interested in flight because of that, which for me meant... Uh, Building tons of model airplanes and studying, air, you know, studying aeronautics and stuff like that. Uh, but I realized I couldn't become a pilot because of my eyes at a certain point. So oh. that path to becoming a pilot went away, and and then uh, the whole path to being in the Air Force went away when Vietnam started. And my dad said, "You do not want to join the Air Force to try to avoid Vietnam." He said. Oh. He didn't give me any good advice what to do otherwise, but, but he said, definitely uh, don't just join up. So 
I didn't. <laughs> you just had bad eyesight? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Still do for some reason. <laughs> and wouldn't that have kept you out of Vietnam, just the, mm. the bad eyesight? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think that it would have kept me out of flight school, for okay. sure. But okay. no, not out of uh, other fields. I, and I almost did join up. I mean, I came really close. But then uh, I got a teaching deferment. I became a teacher right after college uh, okay. in 69, 70. And uh, just one thing after the other, I just lucked out a number of times in terms of not actually being sent over. I was drafted, but I didn't get inducted. So I didn't go through the whole process and ended up teaching instead. And then drew a high lottery number when that happened. Remember, that was 69, I think. I do remember that. So it, it didn't look like I was going to end up uh, getting inducted. So that's when I kind of went to New Hampshire and started doing woodworking, basically, and boat stuff. And then how, how did that happen? How did, uh, how did you get over there? That was through connections with uh, friends of friends. And uh, it was the summer of 69, no, 70, I think. Uh, uh, this group of guys had a big commission to build cabinets, high-end cabinets in a restaurant, I think it was. And they needed help, and I was not doing anything that summer. And I just sort of volunteered to help where I could. And as soon as I got into it uh, with them, I said, this is really fun. This is what I want to learn how to do. Wow. And I started learning kind of finish work, finish carpentry, and kind of never went back after that to any kind of academics. You know, I was really far more interested in craft at that point. So yeah. just stepping <clears throat> back a little, you were a teacher. So mm -hmm. You'd been to college at that point. Yeah, I had a degree in geology. So you were teaching geology? Te teaching science to kids, science okay. teacher. What levels? That was like third to sixth grade, mm -hmm. and uh, this was through the teacher corps. Yeah, that was primarily what I was doing in teacher corps, was sort of doing science type stuff with the kids. And where did you go to college? Uh, University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Bachelor's degree in geology. Geology, yeah. And your first woodworking, that was like on a summer off from Some, teaching? Yes, in between teaching, we had the summer off. And then uh, I was still living with some of those guys, that, uh, roommates, basically. And then, and they were they were all graduates of Rhode Island School of Design, <laughs> so they were doing pretty high-end furniture stuff and cabinetry. So it was just pure luck that I fell in with those guys. And uh, as soon as I did, you know, I just, and also at that that was also the year that I met Bud McIntosh and hung around his shop some. And, he was a real inspiration for me of somebody who was really very articulate, uh, you know, very highly educated, and what he did for a living was what he loved to do, which was boat building, working with wood. It just said, well, you know, I guess I don't have to feel bad about uh, going into the trades with a college degree. If Bud could do it and love his life, I bet I could too. So he was a main inspiration for me to and to write. He, you know, he. He encouraged me to write at one point, too. He was he was a really big influence on my life. So I don't know that he knew that so much. but It's interesting because, you know, both Dick McCurdy, he had uh, two degrees mm -hmm. and and uh, then got into the maritime world and never used either of them. Sean Rankins, he had a, a degree that he never used either. That, I, I know a few other people. I can probably know when to name names, but yeah. there's a lot of guys around here with college degrees that never never went there. Well, they went to college, but they didn't go anywhere with the degrees they had. They went into craft, basically. What did your parents think of that? I think they were a little surprised. And some of them, some of the extended, my extended family, aunts and uncles, they, they were 
you know, they're very much into education as being the key to upward mobility. And that I would choose to go into the trades was surprising to them. But then when I started writing, you know, which is about 25 years ago now, and they saw that I was having success with writing, I think they felt that I felt vindicated anyway. And I think they realized, I guess I was just doing what I needed to do. Talk a little bit more about Bud McIntosh. Well, the thing that you know, really got inspired me later on was he wrote his own book on boat building, which was a wonderful book. I mean, I, I so enjoyed reading that book. And it was very conversational. It was funny. And it was highly uh, technical it, it also in the midst of these great just, you know, stories that he would sprinkle in. And he, he said, boy, if I was going to ever write a book on woodworking, this is the template I would use. It would, it would be not just your everyday how-to book, but it would be a, a real conversation and fun. So that really, that is what uh, I really owe to, to Bud in his life, was uh, not just the, the fact that an educated person doesn't have to be a professional carrying a briefcase and wearing a suit and tie. You could be a professional and, you know, just shape wood. So anyway, both those things were hugely influential on, on my life. Yeah, I feel really glad I met him. Did you work for him at all? No, no. at that point, nobody could work for him because he was a one-man shop. And, and his shop was a, an OSHA nightmare. I mean, it was, there was only one electric motor, and that was running these leather belts that were running all these machines, no guards on anything. I mean, it was truly, it was a, it was a nightmare in there. It was like a horror movie. <laughs> and he knew it, and he knew there's no way he could have people really working with him. He did under the table sometimes, but no, at that point in his life, he was just about working completely alone, still building big boats. He was doing a, I think it was a 48-foot schooner when I met him. By himself? Yeah. And that wow. was for, I can't remember the name of the schooner. But anyway, he, he, he launched it, and, uh, and then he immediately started another boat. And uh, I think he started a boat for himself at that point, too, just like a 30-foot power boat to just go upriver. He was on the Piscataqua River, launched right into the river with a Model T engine as the, uh, <laughs> as the power source. Really? Yeah, yeah, he's quite proud of that motor. He said it'd been working for a long time, and he had wrecks of old boats in his yard that were so fascinating. Isles of Shoals boats and Crotch Island Pinky, and at least one other one that were just sort of dissolving into the, you know, the brush. They they were all had been measured. So you were doing the woodworking, and then you met him, and you just hung out with him some. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I'd go ask him okay. questions. I started building a little skiff, and I would go pretty regularly on, on weekends and go and ask him advice and, you know, how to uh, do certain things, which he would tell me. And uh, then he, you know, gave me some instruction about how to rig it. And then he gave me some plans about here's the next boat you should build. And he gave me a little river weary and a cat boat. And i uh, done models of them at this point. And then with Matthew Strawn Morse, we built the Piscataqua River Weary, which uh, was a really fascinating boat. That's a whole long story in itself. But you know, traditional boat. Uh, Bud had built quite a number of them, and he, with others, built, I think, six of them for the bicentennial, and they raced them in the Piscataqua River. It was just a, a program through Strawberry Bank, I believe. So anyway, that, that was one of the plans that I had from him, and always wanted to build it, and I finally did with Matthew about four years ago, I think, here in town. Oh, okay. You yeah. didn't build it way back then. No, that was here. Yeah, it was, it was at the point where I wasn't doing too much uh, heavy woodworking myself, but uh, 
I was get, so I, you know, worked with Matthew Strong Morris, who probably really did about ninety-five percent or more of the work on the boat, the physical work. We spent a good chunk of time together lofting it, though, and figuring out best ways to do the setup and molds and all that kind of stuff. Figuring out the wood. A lot of the wood was uh, Alaska yellow cedar offcuts from the uh, Western Flyer project, and uh, their offcuts were bigger than you know my boat, <laughs> so. So that, that really worked out well, too. And uh, I forget, do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, one sister down in Ojai, California. And okay. she, she's a teacher, been a teacher for her whole life, basically, and uh, president of the teachers union down there. So retired, but still kind of active in the uh, union, I believe. So you're over in, did you say New Hampshire, working, doing, uh, yeah, that's, building these cabinets? Yeah, that's where I, I ended up, in New Hampshire, which is also how I got to meet Bud, because he was in New Hampshire as well. And you were there for how long? Probably eight or eight, eight nine years, something like that. And then uh, Michael Aubin came out here to Port Townsend, was working out here in the later 70s, 76, I think. I was hanging out with him when he lived in New Hampshire. And uh, he was doing small boats and uh, furniture type stuff too. So we knew each other and he came proselytizing for Port Townsend. He basically said, you know, you can do really good boat building stuff in Port Townsend and your, your wage will be twice what you were making in Maine. Because I, I had just been working in Maine at Penobscot Boatworks, Penbow. We were building trawler yachts type things, all wood. But you know, I was making $2.85 an hour. What year? This would have been 74, 75. So how did you get from New Hampshire to Maine? Oh, from New Hampshire to Maine. Well, that was the, the uh, potential jobs around Rockport, Maine. Can't remember who directed me to that, but they, they, I knew that there was work at, Penas, at Penbo. So. so this other uh, stuff you were doing had, like, finished and you were looking for... Yeah, I continued looking for work and, and education, being, you know, jobs that would educate you on the job, which Penbo was doing. Okay. For me, anyway. And was this just another woodworking job, or were you really into boats? Uh, it was really just another woodworking job. It was finished carpentry on the boat. Yeah, I was not a boat builder. Still not a boat builder. <laughs> Even though you've built a bunch of boats. But, yeah, but I don't <laughs> consider myself a boat builder. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a glorified finished carpenter, basically. And uh, that's, that's really what was my specialty. And so at Penbow, I just worked inside the wheelhouse and trimmed out the wheelhouse and did that kind of stuff. But you must have learned a ton just because of, Being, you know, nothing straight. Yeah, even all our, our, our levels, you know, had wedges on them because the, at, that, at that point the, the, uh, the boat was on the waves, so it was tilted down toward the water. Wow. So when we were trying to put, make stuff level in the wheelhouse, you know, all our, our levels had these wedges stuck on them. So we had to, you know, account for that. So what did you measure the angle of the boat and then make wedges that yeah. were the same angle? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the specific levels, like the two-foot level at a certain wedge and so forth. And uh, so that, and then, of course, I did run into having to do curves, meat curves, mostly. So I had cabinets, you know, that were just boxes, but then they had to be fitted uh, to bulkheads, curved hull forms and that kind of stuff. And, and that's when I learned, uh, I better really learn how to do hand tool woodworking because, you know, if you don't know how to use hand tools, you can't work on boats. I'll just come right on and say that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you, you, you'll take too long if you have to resort to power tools. You gotta know how to handle a draw knife and a spoke shave and understand how to lay out to curves and, and do it really quickly. So 
Um, so that's really where I was introduced to that whole concept of working to non-rectilinear forms. But I didn't really learn the layout procedures and all that until much later, you know, after being here and being further immersed in, you know, the boat world. But I was, you know, I didn't do planks. I, I, did, I didn't really get involved in the uh, hull, hull shapes themselves, really. I was all interior stuff and making skylights, boarding ladders, deck houses. I did a deck house at one point, that kind of stuff. All challenging, all fun, always learning something. So what was it about wood that drew you right away into that profession? Working with wood uh, was challenging in that it wasn't just, it, it was engaging both sides of the brain, really, literally. You know, I had to understand how things worked and uh, measurements and layouts and all that kind of stuff. But I also had to have hand-eye coordination to work to that, to manifest all that in three dimensions. And I just found uh, all that together and then running a business, because I was managing my own business for many years, doing subcontracting, finish work, and that kind of thing. So I had to learn business management. And uh, so all of that became um, a challenge, and uh, I guess I enjoy that kind of a challenge. And uh, I, I never, ever made very much money doing any of this stuff. And the opportunities to make a lot of money were things that I wasn't interested in. I kind of lived pretty close to the edge a lot of the time. I lived in boats down at the boatyard on the hard, lived in teepees, lived in uh, geodesic domes, and just all kinds of crazy stuff. Because, you know, what interested me was the, the work that I was doing and learning. That was really my focus. And you worked with these high-end designer guys. Was design a big part of what you enjoyed as well? Yeah, and... Uh, Beyond even just the, the design thing, you know, cabinetry, there wasn't too much of uh, anything all that unique, really, about the stuff I was doing. Some of the uh, joinery was unique, and so, some of it was, but mostly it was learning how to do the, th do the stuff efficiently and make a living at it. And that did mean taking on challenging jobs that couldn't be done easily by just production cabinet jobs. Not that there were many here on the peninsula back then. There's only a handful of people doing custom cabinet work. So I was getting this kind of higher-end custom work, one-offs, that really the, the, the guys who were pumping out kitchen cabinets really weren't that interested in the custom stuff that much. Slowed them down too much. So I sort of filled a niche. And a, a lot of it was boat-related. I spent many years down at the Boat Haven in the old DeLeo building, old cannery. And that's how we had a couple of boat builders working in there. And, and I was in there doing cabinets, even just sometimes kitchens, but then I did a lot of boat stuff, too, out of that shop. Was um, Van Hope there at that point? He actually worked at that shop. That was right after I was there. But, yeah, he worked out of that shop, too. Okay. Yeah, he was building the uh, scow skinner. Yeah. I can't remember the name of the scow. How about Miguel, um, Miguel Winterburn? Winterburn. He wasn't ever in our shop specifically. He was. We were around. You know, he was around, too, and... Some of the guys in my shop worked with him, and I actually got to work a little bit with him on his own boat up at his shop uptown. Yeah, not not very much, not as much as I would have liked to. Yeah, I hear that he was quite a, was he a mentor to a lot of to people? To a lot of people. Yeah, especially like to Ernie especially. And, so he was older. Uh, he was, yeah, he was about 10 years older than us. And he was an absolute master shipwright. I mean, he, he had it down. He knew what he was doing and knew how to do it. And a very uh, energetic, powerfully built. You know, he was a real, real doer. Yeah, I'm, I'm so uh, glad that I got to know him and hung out with him some. So by the time you got to Port Townsend, were you 
you were pretty skilled at that point. You you you'd spent what close to ten years back east. More, yeah, at least that much. Yeah, ten years. I but say all the stuff I was doing back east, I continued doing here in Port Townsend. But it was became more interesting stuff, more challenging stuff too. A lot of it. And did you come out in a big truck full of tools? I, I did carry some, but I procured probably more once I got here. But I did have my basic hand tools with me, many of which I bought at the old original Woodcraft store in, in outside of uh, was well outside of Boston. Can't remember the name of the town, but uh, they were the only people that were able to outfit you with really good hand woodworking tools. Was Woodcraft back then? They were importing most of it from uh, England. It was record and marbles, that kind of stuff. So I still have almost everything I bought from them. Good stuff. It was expensive back then too, though. But, <laughs> <laughs> but at least it was there. And uh, Woburn, Woburn, Mass. That's where it was. Was it you who worked in the the gun factory? Oh yeah, going through college. That's uh, yeah. My 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 aunt was the uh, sales manager for Smith and Wesson. So she, as a result, I was able to get, as a college kid, I could work summers there filling in for people on vacation. So I did many different things in the factory, uh, from the print shop to, uh, you know, firing, uh, hardening the firing pins and little gun, you know, in the 38s. And uh, I was doing, what's it called, brazing, I believe. And I was, I was running a blast furnace for a while. That was a fun part, yeah. Standing in about 130 degrees and throwing uh, bone meal inside these huge furnaces. And, you know, it's talk about grunt work. But, you know, it paid for my college. Right. I paid my, I, it paid my way through college doing that. Yeah, I worked in the uh, Ford Transmission Factory in Detroit in the heat treat department uh, oh, for boy. a summer in the 70s. And it helped pay for college, too. <laughs> and But, yeah, it's hot work. Yeah, very, really hot work. Did you learn anything in that job that... That applied later on? Learned I didn't want to be a factory worker, <laughs> but for sure. I, I learned uh, some, you know, seeing how you have to be really efficient in your, where you laid out your tool stations, and uh, could, I, I could really observe the workflow, how they did that, and un understood the, you know, the production process, basically. Uh, and I'm not saying I really mastered anything there at all, but I did observe how a you know, a, a factory producing very high-end uh, items could do it, you know, with uh, mass production. Although, you know, Smith & Wesson was, I guess, you know, it was mass production, but, you know, ultimately every, uh, every revolver was assembled by hand. Final assembly was always by hand by actual gunsmiths. And I was told that they actually were the first ones to fire the gun, too. So every gun was fired by the gunsmith. So I thought that was interesting. And actually, you know, when I think about it, my interest in woodworking sort of started there too, just seeing the incredibly beautiful workmanship in the stocks, the, you know, the, the checkering that they did, a lot of custom work. So, you know, I got to see, see these, you know, finished racks of guns going by my, my station a lot. And yeah, I was, I was really fascinated by it. Uh, unfortunately, I never got to work in the woodworking department. There wasn't an opening while I was there anyway. I did get to meet Daniel Wesson, but not the original, of course, the grandson. He would come through the shop floor sometimes. And, uh, it was, you know, it was a family business. And uh, he, treated, he treated the people there very, very well. And uh, they, it was a very sad day when Smith & Wesson was bought out by a big holding company, which I think was in the last year that I worked there. 
you know, I don't regret having that experience at all. And, yeah. and it did buy my way through college, and, and I learned how to write at college. You know, that's really what I learned at college, was, was how to write. During your geology degree? Yeah, because we had to do a lot of papers with, with that program. And I also, I minored in uh, communications journalism. So that was a minor, because I enjoyed writing. And, you know, I think I just had a lot of experience in college just writing papers that had to be clearly written and in the proper voice and, you know, all the usual stuff. I had exposure to all that at college, and I, I enjoyed it. Uh, not the physical thing of trying to type fast, but... Oh, yeah, back in the day, typewriters. Yeah, there was no word processing. <laughs> yeah, I would write it all, all by hand and then go to the typewriter. Yeah. Stay up half the night typing papers. I remember those days. Oh, those, that, that was horrible. So. so fast forward now to PT, and when, when do you start writing for money? Or what, when, what was the first thing you sold? Uh, it was, the first thing I sold was the book Working at Woodworking, and that was basically how to set up a, 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 a small shop, like in a two-car garage, to do custom cabinetry, built-ins, and, and, and small furniture stuff. Okay. And, uh, and I, I had set that up and, uh, you know, after coming to the, the Northwest. And, and I basically, again, I've, as you can tell, I've always been interested in how to do efficient production processing. And uh, so I wrote a flowchart for that small, you know, woodworking business in the two-car garage shop. And the flowchart was for uh, people that I worked with because we would partner on big projects and stuff like that. So I actually had this flowchart that we hung up on the wall that said if you wanted to do, for example, the rails and styles of a door, here's the process, here's which machines to set up in which order to make it as efficient as possible. So I had a flowchart that would cover the entire process from bringing the wood in the door to having it go out on the truck. So, so it's the most efficient way to get from start to finish. And I realized pretty quickly that uh, that flowchart really could be a book. I, I could write a, a sort of a shop manual around that chart. <clears throat> so I sort of sketched it out and read a book about how to uh, sell book ideas to publishers. And I kind of went through the whole thing of writing a cover letter and a sample chapter and an outline. And I sent it off to a bunch of publishers. And, Within days, I got a call back from uh, Taunton Press. They interviewed me on the phone for a couple hours and said, well, that sounds like the book we want to do. Turns out I was in the right place at the right time with the right idea. And it, just, it was really a lot of luck. They were looking for a book just like that. And uh, What year was that? Uh, that would have been probably 1988 or something like that. And you got to PT and when? 78, yeah. So it was about 10 years later. I started really uh, thinking about writing as a, as a, a way to, uh, well, increase my income a little bit, but not, not really because I knew you don't make a lot of money writing books, but, but it was something. And they, they, it was a generous advance, especially for 1988. It was, I think it was about $8,000 advance because what I said was I need enough money where I can stop working for a couple months and just focus on doing, get, getting the book done for you. And so they, they were definitely into that. And when we did, you know, I made the deadline, and then I went back to, you know, my cabinet projects. So you were working on a word processor at that point. 
very small one. You, 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 would, you would get about two or three sentences ahead, and that's it. But it was better than the typewriter, because at least I could do corrections, and I could cut and paste a little bit. Yeah, I didn't really start using a real word processor until probably three books in, something like that. And what a revelation that was to have word perfect. Now, now I just write on Google Docs, because I'm, I'm write, working with other writer, another writer right now, and uh, we're co-authoring co some. The last four books have been co-authored. I want to get to that, but before we get get there, tell me a little bit about what PT was like when you moved here. Just what the town was like. Well, it felt for me it felt very very familiar because, as I said earlier, it was very much like the town I grew up in, Hoyok. You know, a mill town basically, the real blue collar mill town. You know, it had a you know had a downtown, had an uptown, and and when I moved here in '78. There was the boat festival, which was one of the big draws. Again, like Michael kind of said too, well, just wait till you see the boat festival. We just had the first one. You're going to love it. So, and I did. So you were here for like the second one? I then? think it was the second one. Pretty sure 78 was the second one. And yeah, it was, it was wonderful. But you know, at that point, it was the boat festival was not like it is today. It was just kind of locals. It was people working on small boats and a little bit in the surrounding area. And uh, we were just playing with boats in the harbor, basically. And was over, it was at Point Hudson? It was, yeah, it was already at Point Hudson at that point. Was there a wooden boat foundation at that point yet? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, Sam Connor is the one that really pulled it together. And uh, a few other guys working in the, uh, the old Coast Guard, you know, the large building that the sail loft is in. That's where he was working down, you know, in the shop and building small boats. And uh, he and Michael, I'll think of his name in a minute, too, but... There was three or four guys working very regularly in there doing small lap strike boats. But the town itself was sort of like what you might think of Port Angeles, a small version of Port Angeles, uh, which was not built around tourism. Uh, and it was uh, everyday people. I mean, the you know teachers, policemen, they all lived uptown. They could afford housing in town. The mill was a huge employer of the town, as was boat building. Uh, and boat repair that had already really been started up in town. Um, Skookum was already starting to build boats. Cape George was going. Cape, Cape George was going. And, of course, the boat, you know, Haven Boat Works. And uh, that was, uh, you know, with, with Mark Burns, that was already well underway. That's where Michael was working. And uh, they were bringing in a lot of boats from the, uh, the Alaska, you know, fishing fleet. So there, there was plenty of work for boat builders in this town in the late 70s, early 80s. And it kind of felt that that was what the town was about, you know, was uh, boat building and, you know, paper mill. And really, there, there weren't festivals other than the very beginnings of the boat festival. And there was the roadie parade, and, you know, that was, <laughs> that was about it. And did you have a boat back in those days? I had a Pulsebow boat. Almost the first boat that I owned in town, I think, was a Pulsebow with a little outboard on it. Then I just had a little variety of different skiffs over time, and then I did get a, a Shane rum runner, 30-foot rum runner, that uh, I lived on for a year or two, I think, down in the Boat Haven. In Boat Haven? Yeah, and my shop is right at the Boat Haven, too, you know, with the old cannery, which is no longer there. The Delios owned that huge cannery. We, we had one side of it. It was like 20 feet by 90 feet. So that building's gone now. Yeah, that's all gone. But we, you know, the travel that could come right up to our door, which was really cool. It was all gravel roads down there. So it was just all kind of open. 
And the railroad was still there railroad. going through Boathaven? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which was a little hard to sleep at night with <laughs> when the railroad came in, because they were loading cars onto the barge riding the Boathaven. They, load, they loaded the whole railroad cars the whole railroad onto cars. the barges. And believe me, you didn't sleep through that if you lived in the boat. It was always at night for some reason. <laughs> the ferry came in in the middle of downtown, you know, right by the town tavern. And uh, But it was a small ferry, maybe 20 cars or something like that. The Olympic or the Rhododendron, these two really small ferries, mm -hmm. and which was the only time you got traffic in town. Otherwise, we literally walked. We would get our breakfast downtown you know, the old, uh, you know, the Blue Parrot or the, uh, the little cafe behind the town tavern. And then you would literally just walk down the middle of the street to the boat haven. And, uh, Sean told me you, dogs would fall asleep in the middle of Water Street. Yeah. Oh, and, and Brian, Brian's dog, he had a wonderful retriever. Brian Toss? Uh, no, uh, Brian Hayes. Oh. And, and uh, I can't remember the dog's name. I wish I did. But in any case... He would hitchhike from the boat haven to the town tavern and back. <laughs> the dog would. Well, everybody knew the dog. They knew, if, you know, if Brian was at the town tavern and he wasn't ready to leave and the dog was ready to go, <laughs> the dog would walk out and everybody knew, knew, knew him and they would take him back to the boat haven and vice versa. And <laughs> That's hilarious. So. And did you hang out at the town tavern? Oh, yeah, just like just about everybody else in town at that point. We never lived there, but. Yeah, I heard that there was it was a bit of a commune almost. Oh yeah, upstairs. Yeah, there were a lot of rooms that you could rent up there very inexpensively. But no, I, when I moved to town, I had enough money to buy a small house uptown, which means like it was around twenty thousand dollars. So that's all it took to buy a house in Port Townsend wow. back then. Then why were you living on the boat? That was in between when I didn't have the house. I had the boat, and, which we actually, at one point, it was hauled out and it was right next to the shop, which is really convenient. <laughs> but it was more fun to live in the water. And then I do little cruises around and stuff like that. I, I have very fond memories of Port Townsend back in, in those days. And, and now uh, it just feels like an entirely different town to me. You know, it's almost as different as the boat festival today is from the boat festival in the 70s. Almost no relationship at this point. There's some, but if just it just feels really, really different if you see the whole evolution of it. So uh, you start writing books. Did you ever have an agent, or did you always work right with publishers? Worked right with publishers, yeah. One book would lead to the next, oftentimes. I would finish a book, and then sometimes I would have an idea for another book. Like I had the idea we should do a built-in furniture book, because that was something that I'd been doing quite a bit of anyway. And I knew there was a lot to learn about how to do belt-ins. So I proposed that, and they liked that idea. And then they proposed the uh, toolbox book, because they said, we need a book on doing toolboxes. And that was kind of one of the first books they did that was more, not a how-to, but uh, almost like a gallery book, almost a coffee table book, really. Of, here's ideas for all this huge variety of toolboxes that are out there. So they proposed it, and uh, I said, well, you know, I'd be really interested in doing it, but more, again, as a, you know, as a coffee table type book rather than just, here's how to make a toolbox book, which I felt there's plenty of that out there. So that was probably their first book that you would call uh, more of a, a general appeal. And did you do the photography as well as the writing? Very little. Some of it, simple in-shop stuff, I would take pictures. But no, they, they always had it done professionally. And, uh, and luckily, uh, Craig Wester here in town, did quite a bit of photography with me. 
for me, well, for Tarn Press. He did at least four or five books with me, and he was great, really good photographer. Sometimes studio shots up at his, his studio, but a lot of it was on the road. We, we would travel and take pictures. And the, the toolbox book required me to travel quite a bit, and I visited people that had really unusual toolboxes. And, and we went to the Smithsonian, went to Williamsburg, went to uh, Jamestown. Yeah, we were at Jamestown, which we tried to identify what may have been the first toolbox in the United States. So we did some research with them. And, and then uh, got to go in the catacombs underneath the Smithsonian Museum. There's like five floors underneath that museum that are just storage. So I got to go down with one of the curators and look at all this storage room filled with toolboxes, all different types. I remember looking at one that was for a, a circus clown for, from, 19, from 1850, and it was in perfect condition. It was a dome top, and he opened it up for me, and you know, there was a poster for you know, a circus uh, you know, laid underneath the, the lid that looked like it was just been printed, you know, it was in perfect condition. And, you know, this is like 1850s, advertising a circus. It was really fascinating. And he had toolboxes that were from shoeshine boys during the Depression, and, and then all of these really specialized trades that had their own types of toolboxes. So, I mean, I, I could have wrote a whole book just about toolboxes of the trades, not just woodworking. but. My focus was woodworking for that book. So that was one of the more fun books, I think, that I, I did was, was that one. Yeah, and how many books <clears throat> have you done total? Sixteen, I think, are in print at the moment. In yeah. print at the moment? I think but so. But you've yeah. written more than that. I think I'm on 18 right now. And 16 still in print? I believe so. Well, no, actually, I just learned that, see, the trouble with the publishing world now is that these publishers get bought out. Yeah. Tom Press just got sold, so they're they're no longer... A family business anyway. And F&W Media, you know, Popular Woodworking, which I did at least four, three books with them, I think, they got bought out by, by uh, Random House. But Random House kept some of my books in print, and I, I don't know how many Taunton will keep in print. It's up to them at this point. But the ones I've just been doing with Lost Art Press are, of course, they're still in right. print. Still selling, too. Amazing. I read that you've sold, like, 750,000 books over all of those? Is that, does that sound right? That was, yeah, there's more than that now. Towards yeah. a million? Probably, yeah, getting there. I don't know who that guy is that bought all of them. But. <laughs> so did you end up with a process for writing books, like you had a process for woodworking? Yes. I, it's funny, I don't really think about it so much in the same way, but I definitely have a process. You know, It, it kind of changes depending on the type of book it is, really. But I always will outline the book, and I'll always try to think what the title is before I get in too deep, because the title really has to say, you know, what's the book about? So sometimes that's the hardest thing to come up with, because if I don't really understand the book, I can't really come up with a title. I've got to really, really understand what the book is supposed to do. And sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes I'll actually end up starting to write the book without really knowing what it has to do yet. I mean, I have a kernel of an idea, but I don't have a full outline yet. And I don't really know everything that I'm going to get into until I start really immersing myself in it. And then that happens pretty quickly. So I don't commit too much to the outline at first. So it's sort of like a very rough draft at first of an outline. And, and, and it can change. You know, I can realize, well, I don't really need to show that part. I don't need to really get into that. 
And then sometimes I'll think, well, I really need to get more into this other thing to explain the first part. Or this is how the book evolves. The book I'm working on right now uh, with George Walker, we only had a kernel of an idea of what the book was about at the beginning. But and we both knew that. And we said, we're going to just start the book and see what it teaches us and be ready to rewrite, be ready to reconfigure, and sometimes really have to almost start over again in certain parts of it. Because we are having to learn a lot to write this new book. I mean, we kind of know it, but we're also completely aware of the fact that we don't know it all yet. But it can be revealed if we work hard enough. And that's turning out to be true. We're finding some stuff that uh, we suspected was out there, and we're working at it hard enough now, we're realizing, yes, this is the way they probably did this. This really worked, and, and it really makes sense. So you're kind of going back and figuring out how pre-industrial mm -hmm. workers or woodworkers did, did yes. their craft, basically. Basically, especially this book is particularly about uh, the fundamental design process, you know, where the, where the designs come from originally and then how they're laid out. And we're looking, you know, probably 1850s and earlier, and going all the way back, like to Egypt, and analyzing from museum quality drawings, because those are accurate. We start exploring and we, we ignore all the measurements. We, they don't mean a thing. Dimensions don't mean anything. What means something is, are the ratios embedded in it. And it's all basic Euclidean geometry, which doesn't use numbers. If you look at Euclid, the whole volume of Euclid, there's no numerical dimensions because they're unnecessary. They have nothing to do with what's going on there, So, which is really, really interesting and totally different than my entire life in the trades up until a few years ago. You've written From Truth to Tools and... And those books are kind of leading up to this They're book, leading up, they? Yeah, by hand and eye. And then we did the workbook by hound and eye. And how did you, how did that transition come about from writing real practical? Uh, yeah, I can almost identify when it happened. And that was when I really started refocusing on hand tools and started to uh, really up my game because I was going to teach hand tool woodworking. And I realized, uh, you know, I knew how to do a lot of stuff with hand tools because I've been working with them for, you know, 45 years, something like that. So I knew how the stuff worked. I didn't know why it worked sometimes. I didn't know why is a hand plane shaped the way it's shaped. Why are paring chisels have long handles and butt chisels have short handles? There's reasons for all that. You know, why is a plane only the, the width of your fist? And why are these layouts being done in these books with no mentions of dimensions, but we have these proportional bar graphs that will tell you what the proportions are and said, so what's that all about? And how come you never see rulers ever in any of the pre-industrial uh, drawings of, uh, you know, furniture and stuff like that? And, uh, and why are there always dividers in their hands? You look at all these uh, artisans and scientists from pre-industrial, you know, which we mean, you know, 17th, 18th century and earlier. And it's because they were using Euclidean geometry. And it was and it was intuitive, and it was uh, extremely precise. It was you know it was, it was as precise as however sharp you can make the divider points, because they weren't using numbers; they were using reality, and pinpoints, and knives. And so, I was getting into it from the point of view of of layout and actually making cuts using pinpoints and knives and cutting to lines, and then uh, using kind of whole number ratios from one part to the next. It was just 
really completely making sense that this is obviously the well we know that's the way they did it there's enough information out there to show that if you look at any rulers that were earlier than the, like 1900 uh, it was rare to find rulers that even had anything less than a quarter of an inch on it so obviously they weren't laying out to numerical rulers but they were laying out to uh, story sticks and you know, which were pinpoints from dividers and scratch lines, that kind of stuff. And so that just started opening the door for me. And then when I met George at a design conference, and he was talking about, uh, you know, how the uh, the Greek orders, the, the columns, designs of Greek Grecian columns, how that influenced furniture makers back in the 1700s. We realized we were, and we went to each other's lectures, and we asked each other really annoying questions at the end. And so finally we got together after his lecture, because I was asking some annoying questions, and uh, he <laughs> said, you know, we need to talk. And so, so we went out and, you know, went to a bar and started talking, and uh, we realized we were both coming at the same thing from two different points. I was coming at it from the tools, he was coming at it from these old books on woodworking that just went on endlessly about Grecian columns, and he was trying to figure out, well, why did they do that? What was that all about? And what that was all about was learning how to use, uh, you know, whole number harmonic ratios to, to make designs. It wasn't about how to make columns. It, wasn't, that's not, it, it was just a teaching tool for learning how to do segmentations, progressive segmentations, modules, segmented modules, secondary modules, all this stuff which we've discovered that was in use back then. And, and it makes perfect sense when you see it. So we got very excited about that we were both kind of onto the same thing and had a lot to learn. And I told George, well, you need to write a book. And he said, I don't know how to write a book. And I said, well, I'll show you. <laughs> so so that's, we did our, the first book together. And, uh, and we've done, you know, four since then. And you said you were, you were learning this because you were teaching a class on hand tools. That's right. and that was probably at the uh, Port Townsend School. Woodworkers School. That's right. That you founded. Yeah, with with uh, Tim Lawson and uh, John Marquardt. Yeah, and how did that come about? It was all Tim's fault, basically. <laughs> you know, he, he knew I lived in town, and then he ended up meeting me. He ended up buying a house right near where I lived, uptown. And uh, he he ended up meeting me and just talking about, he knew, he knew some of my earlier books. And he said, have you ever thought about starting a school? Port Townsend's be a perfect place to have a woodworking school. And uh, I said, no, I really hadn't. I sort of was interested in teaching a little bit or doing presentations. John Markworth and I would do presentations together sometimes. We had a woodworkers guild that we, you know, we would do get together once a month or so and show people how to sharpen or do some basic demonstration type stuff. But we weren't really serious about starting a school, but Tim was. And Tim was, uh, you know, had the ability to pull together the kind of stuff you have to pull together to actually do brick and mortar type stuff. And, and John was a phenomenal cabinet maker and understood about putting a shop together. And I said I would volunteer basically to write the curriculum for hand tool courses. I wasn't interested in teaching cabinet making, and, and John was. And uh, I said I don't really want to you know, teach to the table saw and all that stuff. I'm, I was sort of done with production woodworking at that point and, and done, absolutely done with routers and skill saws, all that stuff that I'd 
been doing for 35 years. I was, you know, I was done. But I said I would teach, you know, traditional hand tool skills, and uh, and I wanted the challenge of making sure I understood them myself, too. And that's where I got into the hand tools, and then that means doing layout for the hand tools with the hand tools, and that's when this whole other world opened up to me, and I started uh, realizing that there was a whole another way of doing woodworking, previous to the industrial age. Isn't that amazing that you you can think you know it all and then something happens and you realize that, that yeah. you don't know anything? I didn't or, know anything. Yeah. I just assumed people wrote, you know had dimensioned on on plans and they just measured things out and cut them. That's what we were doing. It's not what they were doing at all. Not even close. And and you know who knew? <laughs> Certainly yeah. not me. Until I started trying to do it, they said no. They weren't they weren't using these. You know, rulers, folding rulers, and with hand scratched, you know, uh, numerical point, you know, uh, lines on there. That's no, that's not what they were doing. And the, and then then you started reading really old books. I'm talking about books from the 1600s and 1700s that talk about crafts and and some woodworking. And all you get is geometry. The first third of those books is geometry, and it's not numerical. It's not algebraic geometry. It's Here's how you lay things down on a piece of paper to get perfect squares and triangles and triangles with curves in them. And here's how you get two curves to meet, you know, at a tangent point. And, you know, all this really practical stuff that the artisans would use. And then it gets, you know, incredibly complex stereonomy type stuff. I think it's called uh, descriptive geometry, I think is what it's called today. But it's basically where you're taking a three-dimensional object and you're laying all the facets of it down flat on paper so you can uh, cut the true shape, you can develop the true shape, which you can't do in three views. You know, if there's any angles or curves involved, you know, you can't do it uh, except through stereonomy, which was taught by Rubeau, you know, back in the 1750s. And you can get a whole book on it. It's still taught today, traditionally in France. And of course, they're the ones that are doing the reconstruction of Notre Dame using those ancient layout techniques and, and you know real wood with real joints they're not but you know they're not fastening things together with metal you know they're doing it the, the real way mm -hmm. you know picking wood that was in the, grown in the right part of the tree for the right application you don't mix up posts and beams unless you know where they were in the tree that kind of stuff which nobody knows today hardly or even thinks about but they do do you think bringing this this back you know, writing these books will be sort of, I don't know, your legacy? It'd be nice to think that would be true. Uh, but, you know, again, it's this, you don't make a living doing this kind of workmanship anymore, unless you're working at Notre Dame right now, but in other places. I mean, you still see this in, in different parts of the world, people doing this traditional woodworking, and they, they're aware of all this stuff. Uh, you know, we are not creating any of this stuff. We're discovering this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is just a pure exercise in discovery, which is really really fun. Well, do you think then, you know, the carpenters back that were using these techniques, they had to be more I don't know if educated is the word, but if if they're they had to know geometry. They would know basic Euclidean geometry. They would yeah. basically know how to take a circle and get a square out of it, for example. They would know how to develop symmetry very quickly, you know, as they were doing a drawing. And uh, they would very quickly know how to proportion things simply and, you know, and effectively. 
And a lot of that would just be rules of thumb. They may not really understand how all the geometry works. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily know, you know, the, the books of Euclid describing the logic systems behind it. They wouldn't need to. They would just know, you know, if I'm laying out uh, these two curves that have to meet, well, I need to know how to uh, get a line between the two radius points and figure out where the tangent point is and make sure the tangent point is on that straight line between the two focal points. Mm -hmm. S simple stuff like that, which is almost just rule of thumb. And that's what most of them would know. The master of a shop might actually fully understand where the Euclidean geometry comes from and uh, he can extrapolate from it to doing uh, more creative work. Yeah, developing new furniture designs. So he would probably know far more about the geometry than the, the workers would. But, and he would be the one that would create uh, the story sticks that they work from and the templates for curved parts. Almost never drawings. They usually want to, well, earlier they probably wouldn't do too many drawings. They would develop most of it on sticks, I would think. And hmm. when they did do furniture, they usually did do full-scale drawings. Full-scale? A lot of times it was full-scale. They would just stretch canvas, basically. So yeah. kind of like lofting a boat? Very similar, sure. And the masons, you know, they would do big slabs of limestone on the floors. And the, and the masons' lodge, that's what the masons' lodge was for, was for them to do these big layouts. Oh, really? And, and that's where they would get all the molding shapes laid out. All that kind of stuff was done uh, full scale. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, and, they, and they actually find them. They find these big slabs of limestone with the, the geometry scratched into it. We're going to put that in the last part of this book we're working on right now, the whole uh, way that they did layouts uh, in large structures, like bigger than furniture when you're doing structures. Uh, they used the same sort of thing, but they had different tricks for doing layouts called seven circle constructions. Does any of that translate into CAD, you know, what people do in computer-aided design? Is that a totally different deal at this point? I think it's a different deal in that the, you know, the computers have to use the numbers that are generated with the geometry. There's a lot of tricks of the trade to generate like a three, four, five triangle or, or what, there's some mason symbols that show all these interrelationships of the geometric triplet, but it's overlaid underneath a hexagon with a pentagon rising out of it. And it all just sort of works and you don't, one, one step leads to the next. And I, was, I kept looking at it and I said, is, is this really true? Is this real? I mean, is this stuff as perfect as it looks? Uh, and you put it in CAD and it's not. It's not? It's not. It's within like once, well, less than a percent off some of it, but it's not perfect. It, it, it's kind of just, I think what happens is, you, you know, you have the problem with pi. It's, it's an irrational. And, and you can find that in CAD too, when you're, you're trying to do things on CAD using irrational numbers, well, things won't exactly meet in places. They, they can't because, you know, the, 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 it's a round over, right? You're, you're rounding. But if, but if your graphic is trying to do with the rounding, the, you know, the two points can't come together because the numbers haven't closed, right? So what's interesting is that they were generating all this stuff. It was absolutely good enough for construction. And, and there were tricks to getting this Pentagon really quickly that Dreher, Albert Dreher, showed how to do it. But when you run it through CAD, you say, well, it's, it's, it's not a regular polygon because all the angles are the same, but all the lengths aren't quite the same. Or you can get all the lengths the same, but then the angles aren't exactly the same, which you would have to 
be true for a regular polygon, which you can do, but you can't do it through this tricky construction stuff they were doing. You'd have to do it by drawing a circle and doing pinpoints around it, right? So you could step five times around a circle, you keep adjusting it until it fell back into the pinpoint. Then you'd be there perfectly, better than CAD. It'd be within 10 thousandths of an inch, or it actually literally be perfect, right? Because, you know, it's the even step outs. But, it, but again, you know, the, these are people that were just fashioning stuff in stone and metal. They, uh, oh, well, not even metal so much as wood. And the stuff doesn't have to be at that level of perfection that you would in a, uh, if you were doing high-end machining. And it's interesting for, because, you know, George Walker, who I'm working with, he, he's a master machinist. That's where he's coming from. His working life was at Timken Bearings, and they worked to the millionths of an inch. And here we are, so an millionths of an inch. Yeah, on, the, on some of the bearings, the military gave bearings, and the ones for NASCAR, but that's a secret. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah. And uh, so they work super high precision. But you know what he does for fun is what I do for fun is, you know, is just use sticks and, you know, hand planes and, you know, just making stuff fit. But we're not thinking about it in these, in these numerical terms at all. So it's, it's really fun to, to kind of come from these d different places and just watch how all this unfolded, you know, in the, in the course of the development of the arts what they call the arts and mysteries of the trades. And are you getting a lot of interest in, in, these, in these books? And Yeah, they. Well, I just noticed by hand and eyes, and it's 14th printing or something? 14th? Like, something like that. It keeps getting reprinted, so that's a good, no, 8th printing. At least the last one that I saw at the store was in the 8th. Eighth, but I think he told me it's up to 12 now. Any case, yeah. People, again, though, you know, what, what do we mean by a lot of people? Well, that probably means 20 or 30,000 people, which, you know, on Instagram, that's nothing, right? <laughs> so, but, you know, we're not, we're not doing it to get rich, believe me. We're doing it because it's actually really fun. And it's really useful if you really get into it and you, and you are a, an artisan and you see how quickly you can generate these perfect polygons. And, and perfect intersections of curves. You can just do it in, or design a piece of furniture, you know, a, a, like a little chest of drawers with graduated chest of drawers with a nice little curved apron underneath. It takes 10 minutes using these old, and I'm not even exaggerating. I just did one yesterday. Literally took 10 minutes and full scale. And it's like 10 minutes and how much study to learn the technique? 10 years. <laughs> 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 Probably. <laughs> but the thing is, is that if I was in a shop, in the traditional old school shop, I would have all this information in my head. I'd have all these rules of thumb in my head. And I would just do it. I said, just whip one out. And even more likely, the, the master of the shop would have already done it. And it would just be on a, a story stick leaning in the corner with a pattern for the apron hanging above it, you know, in thin veneer. So you just go over and grab the stick and the pattern and you're... You know, you, you'd be expected to have the thing pretty much cut, cut out in one day, not assembled, but you'd have all the parts done in a day with hand tools, New Year's stuff. So yeah. speaking of writing, you've written a lot for Wooden Boat Magazine? Yeah, over the years. How did that come yeah. about? Well, again, just having article ideas. And, and I, I knew, you know, I knew quite a few people in the marine trades at that point. I would just run into an idea that, you know, I'd, I'd run up by one of the editors, like Tom or someone, and say, well, you know, what do you think of this? And... If it was a good idea, you know, we would put an article together. 
in the very earliest days, I was doing a column for Wooden Boat right at the very beginning. And, the beginning uh, of your career or beginning of Wooden Boat? Wooden Boat. I think the first two, two or three issues, at least, I think I did a... I was doing a tidings column, just news of the coast. Is that when you were living back Yeah, because I was on the main coast then. Yeah. I was in Rockport. Yeah, and I would just go around and give the news of what's happening in the shops. Kind of like what Tom Jackson is Yeah, kind of like, yeah. Yeah, yeah some of that. So I was doing, because I met John when he was just starting the magazine. This is John? Wilson. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of just met him on the main coast in 1970, 71, something like that. Yeah, I always wondered what would have happened if I had really stuck with it and uh, kind of gotten in more on the ground floor with moving right to Brooklyn and kind of working right in the magazine instead of just being a freelancer. I always thought that would have been a whole different career path. But it was, you know, it was really beginning back then. He didn't really, he didn't have the place in Brooklyn yet. And it was just in a shed in the woods, basically. Is that right? Yeah. It's a small house in the woods. And what, what wasn't a whole, and who, who knows whether the magazine was even going to work back then. He suspected it would, but not everybody else did. <laughs> Turned out it did find an audience. Yeah, it was, it was the right time. It was the right time to start the magazine. Do you have a favorite article you wrote for them? The one that I really kind of remember the most is the one I wrote about leathering your oar locks instead of leathering your oars. Oh. And that came from being up in Victoria one weekend, just walking around up there, and I saw a lifeboat, and all the oar locks were leathered, and, and, the, and the oars weren't. And I said, well, that kind of makes sense. It's like uh, do you, when you go out for a walk, do you leather the road or do you put leather on your feet? <laughs> You no, know, you put the leather on your, you don't bother leathering the whole road, so why would you leather an oar when you can leather the oar lock? And it, it just made perfect sense. And I ended up talking to somebody up there in Victoria, and they said, yeah, we always do that. Once a year, we may have to change out the leathers on the oar locks, but at least we're not nailing leathers into the oars, and you don't need much leather. You just need it where it bears, right? So it made perfect sense to me. And then when you grease it up, you're not trying to grease up this whole sleeve of leather, you're just greasing the little bit on the oar lock. So that was probably 35 years ago I wrote that article, and I still use leather door locks. Well, it's kind of changed to giggle plastic lately, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> so anyway, that was, that was kind of fun because, that, again, that was sort of one of those revelation-type things. You know, I would look at it, and then all of a sudden I realized what I was looking at, and all of a sudden I said, here's an article. This is really interesting. And, you know, use a baseball stitch to put the oars, you know, the the leathers on the oar locks. And, and, and I was always amazed that it wasn't more prevalent, but it was prevalent in Victoria on all these, you know, this club that had, that raced lifeboats and stuff like that. So, yeah, they, they were just doing that. It probably came from a, some, some place in England, I'm sure, some, some locality where that course has it should do. You've written for lots of other magazines as well, I mean, over the years. Yeah, so. fine home building, fine woodworking. In different, various smaller magazines, popular woodworking. There were some small journals, you know, monthly or week, we had monthly journals that I, I wrote for for a while. So was most of your income then from writing ap- after? Yeah, after, after a certain point. Yeah, after a certain point. Between books, I'd be writing for Coastal Living magazine and Cottage Living, and then these woodworking magazines. It was, it was getting to the point where I was writing one or two articles a month for someone. Plus, having book royalties coming in. So I, I ended up transitioning, you know, in the past 20 years from uh, making a living through having to produce 
woodworking in real time to producing, you know, knowledge, basically, and disseminating knowledge. It's easier on the back. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fascinating because the, the rabbit holes you end up jumping down when you start exploring in the, in the old literature is, is just incredible. I, you know, I've been reading a lot of books that were written in the mid-1800s and earlier. And, you know, at first you just cannot tell what are they talking about. But then you keep looking at it, and then you start getting out your dividers and your rule, and you start doing it, and you say, oh, my God, look at how quick that was. No wonder they did it that way. And it's just super simple ways of finding angles and, and not using protractors, because who can see a protractor at this point anyway? You have little tiny marks on it. And plus, you're at the bottom of this huge angle trying to read an angle on a of course not. They didn't do that. What they used was a cord, which was, you know, however many feet out, usually it would be 16 and a half feet, which was a rod. And 16 and a half feet, if you, and there were, you know, two sticks hinged at the, at the, at the focal point, you just took a rope, a certain, or a cord, literally a cord of a certain length attached to the ends of the two sticks. And all of a sudden you got your angle that you want. Sets it perfectly, and, and and you don't have to look at it, read anything, and uh, and that's why a chord of a circle is literally the chord. The chord shows you the chord of the angle. So we can, you know, there are a lot of revelations around where where did these words come from? What like irrational number? Why is it irrational? It's because it's not able to ratio. It's simple. That's what it means. And a right angle is recto, and it's recto because the other side is also recto, so they're co-recto. Now you know where the word correct comes from. <laughs> and, you know, I'd run into this endlessly, and which was so much fun to have these reveals. There's something that we work with every day, and we never think about, well, why is it like that? Well, that's why it's like that, because it is that. The chords are the chords. Correcto means it's a right angle, because it's the same angle on both sides. That's the only time you get a right angle. And why is it a right angle? Because it's the right angle. <laughs> <laughs> it's the angle that a post should meet a level floor at. Everything else would not be correcto, and, it, and, it, and you would not transfer the, the, the uh, compression forces when it goes straight down the post like they should. So you'd be putting the, the grain in shear if you're not perfectly plumb. So th that's the right angle. That's fascinating. Uh, uh, so all this stuff is fascinating. That's, yeah. that's why I still am doing it, because it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And uh, Very cool. it's so much fun. Let's talk a little bit about your boating. You've, you've done a lot of like camp cruising? Camp cruising. Up in the San Juans? or Yeah, San Juans and the Gulfs. What kind of boat? Denman, Hornby, some of the inland lakes of uh, Vancouver. It was all with the little 14-foot Whitehall. Well, it turns out it wasn't a Whitehall, but that's another long story. <laughs> <laughs> we thought it was a Whitehall for years, and then we realized when we got to Campbell River, when we saw boats exactly like it, and they said, no, that's a fishing weary. Uh -huh. So our boat is a fishing weary. It's not a Whitehall, but it looks like a Whitehall. And is that the boat you have now? Yeah, we still have oh, it. You... Yeah, we've, we've owned it for about 26 years now. So you and Kathy used to do this a lot? Yeah. Yeah, we bought the boat together when we first got together. And the first thing we did is we trailered it up to Sydney, put it in the water at Sydney and rode across and started going around the Gulf Islands in it. We had absolutely no idea what we were doing, actually. When I think about some of the things we did, you mean there's a tidal current chart? I didn't know 
<laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking. You know, doing that up there. I mean, the currents are crazy up there. And, yeah. Uh, well, I think we were we were observant. I'll put it that way, and we were. We, we wouldn't go out when we knew there were going to be adverse weather conditions. We just wouldn't go or fog. We just didn't. But we didn't really understand how to read tidal charts and all that kind of stuff. If it, the current was too strong, well, we just go where the current was going. <laughs> <laughs> go with the flow. Go Literally, because we really didn't have an agenda. Even if it meant we didn't get to a certain island we wanted to get to, well, we just wouldn't go there. We would just go where we could go. And we, we it did have a sail rig, but we found we used the sail rig so little it was almost wasn't worth carrying it, you know, because it was easier to get someplace just by rowing to it in a straight line. And we would sometimes take turns rowing, or we we could row to, even though it was just fourteen feet. If we were synchronized pretty well, we could row together. And you know, we were just it was it was backpacking really. We weren't carrying much more than you would carry if you were backpacking. So that's how you get away with it on a little tiny. 14-foot boat, but a very seaworthy little boat. I must say, that boat was in conditions we probably really should not have been in, but I never, never, never got an ounce of green water over the, over the gunnels on that never. boat. Never. It's always just incredibly buoyant. Not not really fast boat, but it, it but it's still but basically with two people. It's effortless. You're not going fast, though. You're going maybe three knots, if you're yeah. lucky, but it's steady. It just feels very, very secure. So obviously, it was built for working up, you know, in the top of Georgia Straits up by, you know, Campbell River. And that's pretty choppy out there. And uh, and they would go out every day in these things. Yeah. And they're all 14 feet. They're all same beam, which is, like, think about 52-inch beam, something like that. How do they do in a crosswind? Do they get the, blown off? Not or? very much. They have a full-length full keel and a okay. pretty, pretty good size, what turns into a skeg in the stern. So there's there's a lot of bearing cross bearing surface on, on that boat. We find it very rarely blows. It's not hard at all to keep it on course, unless it's ridiculously windy when you shouldn't be out there anyway. Mm-hmm. But in just you know general up to twelve knots, you almost don't have to think about it. It just goes where where you're rowing. Mm-hmm. So Maybe a little harder pull on one side than the other. And we did learn the importance of balanced oars. So we we've got oars that are about eight feet. Uh, maybe a little, you know, we made our own to a point, and now we use the ones that Tom makes down at uh, Grapeview Point. So the rules are wonderful, and they're so perfectly balanced. Just your hands on the oars keep them level. So it, it doesn't take any effort to raise and lower the oars. All the effort goes just into moving, you know, drawing them toward you. And mostly that's just your weight moving back anyway. So, you know, it took a long time to really learn how to row efficiently for long distances, I mean, you know this, this point, you, 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 you let momentum do as much of, and your muscles, the minimum amount, and your, the momentum of your weight doing as much as possible. We also learned the importance of, you know, having really good foot rests that are in the right position that you could really push against, because you're, you're not, they're not, ro- you know, you're not sliding seats, but you're still pushing a bit with your legs, and you need them for bracing too. So we've realized the importance if I roll without foot braces, I really feel the difference. I, I feel my energy has been really sapped. Like 20% more energy it takes without foot rest. Really? I think so. I really notice the difference now. I mean, sometimes you can use the ribs of the boat or something, but you know, it's better to have ones that are the size of your feet and they're in exactly the right position for you. It makes a really big difference. 
So we learned that about rowing too, just using balanced oars, footrests, and the right length of oar, which we sometimes change for conditions. If you're going upwind, you, you want to gear down to a little shorter oar. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And you want to change weight too. You want the bow to be down if you're going upwind, and you want the bow to be up if you're going with the wind. Did I say that right? Yeah. Upwind, you, you want the uh, stern up. Downwind, you want the bow up. So, hmm. and that does, again, that does make a difference. For, what was the longest trip you, you did in, in that? I mean, as, as a single crossing? Well, just... Or just in general? Just in general. We, you know, we didn't go long distances. We, were, we would be up there for a week or two and just kind of going between islands. Mm-hmm. I don't, we never did really long passages in about, I would say, two to three hours at the most okay. for a single passage. We were in amongst the islands pretty much on purpose. Yeah, we didn't try to do really long crossings with it. Part of it's just our confidence level for you know being in a very small open boat in very open water. <laughs> That's tricky. You got to know what you're doing. And plus, we were always looking for campsites. Yeah. So we wouldn't be out in the water that long. We were pretty focused on getting to a campsite. And did, did Abel come along, your son? Yeah, when yes, he did. In, in the first years of his life, even when he was pretty small, we would do not quite as adventurous as we were, but yeah, we we would take him places with with a rowboat, and then later with a poles boat. But the, but the biggest thing of all is we took the dog, just me and the dog, a few times. Oh, the big dog. Yeah, the, the Newfoundland. The Newfoundland. Oh, all, all hundred and fifty pounds of him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just was. It's just really, you know, this won't be good if he starts moving around. So, <laughs> luckily, he, he he was a Newfoundland, so he was happy just to lay in one place. And he, he, I think he liked it. I mean, I would get him in the whole stern of the boat, and I'd be rowing from the bow, and he would just be looking around. And it must have looked really funny because you know, it looked like he was the coaxing, you know. And <laughs> so I did that a couple of times, not really far distances, like here to Maristone to uh-huh. come across once, but yeah, it was. But he was really way too big to be a little boat like that. <laughs> I mean, he weighed more than I did. Yeah, and he and he wasn't rowing either, so <laughs> so he was just like heavy cargo. But that I have very fond memory of the time rowing with him. That was that was fun. So you're working on this book that you described. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas for? Well, you're working on a novel, I know. Well, yeah, I probably that's sort of put away for now. Is but, it? Yeah. Yeah. And I may not do any more with it at this point. I think yeah. I got it out of my head finally. Thanks to you, oh. one of the people. So you, t- you told me I just needed to get the thing written down. So I did. I, d- I don't even know what to make of it. I really don't. But it, there it is. It's out of my head. So that's good. And, and any ideas for other projects coming up? Well, definitely I'm focused right now on getting this, this book done. This, we're calling it A Good Eye, Skilled Hand. That's what this newest book is called which I hope does describe what it's about. So, you know, my focus is very much on that. Every day now I'm spending a couple hours on it. You know, exploring, looking through old literature, doing drawings, trying to see what the geometry really is behind some of the stuff, and having just just real aha moments when all of a sudden I realize, well, God, that's obviously the way they must have done this. This is so simple, but yet it looks so complex, but really it's really simple. So that's where it's really fun. I am thinking that there might be one more book that's the tricks of the trade, you know, the, the doing ge- the geometric layouts and stuff like that, solving equations using plane geometry. 
I mean, literally equations where things balance on each side of a balance beam, that kind of stuff. And just generating uh, solutions to uh, all these different geometric problems using, again, these really old methods. I already got the title for that book. That's called uh, Constructions and Conundrums. <laughs> <laughs> so now I have to write that book too. Yeah. But, but that'll just be a collection of tricks of the trade, basically. So kind of like the rules of thumb that the old timers would use that you were talking about. Yeah. That yeah, and, they're, and they're, you know, the thumb was basically, that's a plank, you know, just your general, that's a thumb wide, typical, typical plank, you know, it's about 13 sixteenths of an inch, so shelf, any of that stuff. And then there's hand widths, there's palm widths, you know, all these different, different things that, that were used a lot. You know, like a, a working desk is almost never more than three hand spans wide, because your arm is three hand spans. So why would you need a bench that's more than three hand spans? Because that's the length of your arm and you can't reach more than that. So, you know, simple, simple stuff like that. And, that, and, and the tools are like that. You know, this is a smoothing plane. This is a jack plane. Three of these is a triplane. And they're always the width of your fist because if, if, if the blade was wider than your fist, you'd have forces that were make, making your fist go like this. Pure physics. So you want all, all the force to be directly behind the blade. Otherwise, you're going to be skewing. That's why they're the width of a fist. Yeah. It's just pure physics, biophysics. See, I was going to ask you, any advice for people, young people, or people that want to get into the trades, woodworking, boat building? Um, well, there's, there's a lot of good schools out there now that there yeah. never used to be. Well, there were always a few, but hard to find or get into. Yeah. There's more, more good schools around the country. It's actually starting to be a resurgence. Even in high schools, they're starting to think about letting kids work with their hands again, some. So I think I'm seeing hope on the horizon that there will be places to learn hand skills still. Otherwise, you just got to sort of do it and find a mentor or at least do a lot of reading and practicing. That's not easy. But, you know, I, I was able to get on the job training. I mean, I was lucky. I was working with people that could show me what to do. So, I mean, I, I feel very lucky I was in the right place for that. But if I were doing it now from scratch, I, I would certainly think about, for boats, I would definitely look at the boat school here mm -hmm. because it's here and it's a really good boat school. Not cheap, but it's, you'll learn something there, a lot there. Of course, Port Townsend School of Woodworking yeah. has a lot of stuff going on. You know, I asked Leif the same question and he had the same answer. Is that right? Go to school. Go to school. what he said. It'll save you so much time. Yeah. It's got to be a, a, a school that understands what they're teaching, though. Yeah. I mean, there, there's some schools, I won't mention names, but there are some schools where they're just exploiting you. You just end up working, sanding boards, that kind of stuff. You don't really, you're not really learning the craft anymore. I don't think the teachers really understand the craft themselves. They're too far divorced from, you know... See, we have people like Miguel Winterburn here and, and many, many others I can mention. And, I mean, these guys were carrying the tradition on from you know, from the turn of the last century. You know, there, 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 there was an unbroken string of tradition there in how to do things. And You think there was? Yeah, I think if you find the right people, sure. Yeah, these, these people, you know, were trained by people all the way back to the pre-industrial era. So they really understood hand tool skills, hand skills. Yeah. So you think there was an unbroken string? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting, because yeah. I always thought there was Hard a gap find. between... 
you know, the 18, late 1800s boat builders and then the boat builders that, you know, were here in the 70s or whatever. But you think there was... No, I think there was a string. I mean, it, it didn't happen everywhere. It didn't happen yeah. for everyone. But there were some people who definitely would carry that forward. Well, certainly for me, Bud McIntosh carried that forward. You know, he was working in shops in the early 1900s. So okay. He worked at Sam Crocker's, for example. Yeah. He, he, he built Concordia Sloops and, and, and earlier stuff. So, and, and if you look at his earlier designs, they, they looked right out of the 1800s, British boats, Scottish. Yeah, I can name quite a few others if my memory worked well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah there, there, there's a number of Guy, well, like life, you know, that they 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 understand the craft deeply, yeah. and they know where it came from. They know they understand the why, not just the how. And that's to me, that's the key. That's the key metric is if they understand enough to be able to explain to a student. They can't just say, "Well, don't ask that question. That's just how you do it. Just shut up and do it." They've got to be able to say, "Well, this is why we do it this way." You could do it this way. You could do it that way, but it would be way less efficient. This is the really efficient way to do it, and this is why it's efficient. You know, this is why a handsaw is never longer than the length of your arm. And they'll explain that to you. It's interesting. You've, you've brought up efficiency several yeah. times. And yeah, in that's true. And a couple, two or three different contexts. That's because it's the only way to make a living. You've got to be efficient. But if you're too efficient, then you might as well just be, you know, running, running machines with the CAD system. But that's not what a lot of people want to do. They want to be engaged in, in you know, both sides of the brain. I do uh, speak to efficiency quite a bit. I never really thought about it that way. But that, that's a lot of the driving force and why I would learn things in certain ways. Try to find people to explain to me, why do we do it this way? Because mm -hmm. I want to find out why. Uh, should I be bothering to find a different way? I mean, is this the only way? If it is the only way, why did it end up being the only way? And, and I, I like that. I like that I have that curiosity. Because it's, it's fun to learn the answer. And sometimes you have to find it out for yourself. And, and a lot of that means you just have to be doing it. you got to do the work. you just yeah. got to use the tools, use the techniques. And that's where the conversation ended. Many thanks to Jim for taking the time out to speak with me. The interview was conducted on December thirteenth, 2023, for the Maritime Voices podcast. That's at maritimevoices.org. And for the Jefferson County Historical Society. Thanks for listening.